I'm Kathleen Gustafson, and welcome to the coffee table. Cook and let oil and gas availability and renewable energy is the topic. And let's check in and see. First of all, let's check Scott Waterman's mic. Scott Waterman, would you introduce yourself the way you would like to be known? All right. Thank you. Kathleen. Um, I'm Scott Waterman. I am a retired uh, energy uh, specialist. Uh, I've worked for Alaska Housing Finance Corporation for about 25 years and uh, and lots of other time in the energy industry. I'm on the board at the Renewable Energy Alaska Project and uh, and I serve on the uh, Kenai Peninsula uh, Resilience and Security Advisory Commission, although today I am here not in that role at all. Okay, well, thank you so much for introducing yourself. That's Scott Waterman. Also, how about Aaron McKittrick? Do you read me? Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Good morning to you. Yeah, I hear you loud and clear. And Brettwood Higman. Hig, are you there? I am. Ah, oh, wonderful. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, we may also be hearing from Anthony Scott. I hope he's going to log in real soon. But I want to start with... Um, Scott Waterman, because you are the person who sent me the Division of Oil and Gas or told me about the Division of Oil and Gas report in January talking about supply and demand for oil and gas in Cook Inlet. So can you, what caught your eye about this? What do you want to say about it? Well, setting the stage, the Cook Inlet gas supply uh, serves all of the rail belt, both for electricity production and uh, for many of the rail belt residents and businesses to heat their homes and businesses. The Division of Oil and Gas um, at Department of Natural Resources and the Oil and Gas Commission uh, released a report just a couple of three weeks ago uh, that says that uh, supplies may or demand may exceed supplies as soon as 2027 and that is a bit worrisome because at this point there are not any other alternatives um, on the table that we can bring online in a very short order. So uh, it got my attention. Um, we are seeing things like, um, uh, we'll talk about uh, solutions as we go, but that's, that's the uh, stage. Um, we're just approaching the end of um, uh, readily available gas in Cook Inlet. Thanks. Thanks so much for that assessment. I want to start um, with Aaron McKittrick because I'd like to hear, I got some notes from you about the history of the Cook Inlet oil and gas supply and demand. And so I'd like to hear from you about, did I, the notes I got from you from the Cook Inlet Recovery Act? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, just because I didn't introduce myself oh, earlier. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I beg your pardon. It's okay. That's <laughs> fine. So, I'm yeah, I'm Erin McKittrick. I live in Soldovia, and I've been analyzing and looking into energy and gas issues for several years uh, and actually wrote something about the Cook Inlet oil and gas um, a couple years ago about the position that we were in then that we're in today, too. And um, I just want to say some of you might know me as one of your Homer Electric uh, Board of Directors. I am that too, but that's not the capacity I'm speaking in today. So the Cook Inlet Recovery Act is basically in 2010, it was a law 
pass to uh, try to bolster production in Cook Inlet because we were having very similar discussions then about, you know, the shrinking supply, worries about brownouts, crises, price shocks. And one of the main things the state did was basically put in a bunch of tax credits. Um, this was at the same time that there were also tax credits uh, for the North Slope. And so the state basically paid about one and a half billion dollars of credits to Cook Inlet producers over the time period. I think it ended in 2016 and we've been paying back and still owe over $200 million on those credits. Wow, thanks so much. And also I wanna introduce uh, Brentwood Higman. Hig, how would you uh, introduce yourself in terms of this discussion? Oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, in, in some ways uh, uh, just uh, an interested member of the public. Um, but you do also, an awful uh, lot of homework for being <laughs> just an interested member of the public. Yeah, th th that's a good way of thinking of it. Maybe a, a, an interested member of the public that does a lot of homework. I'm also I'm also uh, Aaron's husband, um, and I, I work uh, with Scott on the the resilience and security advisory commission. Um, again, not not uh, not speaking for them here. Just just. Uh, Trying to be involved and and um, uh, and I've I uh, my actual expertise is as a geologist and uh, and I um, that sometimes is is kind of the the glasses I'm wearing when I'm looking at these issues and sometimes uh, just trying to understand it more broadly. So, thanks so much. That's Brett Wood Higman. I'm going to stay with you on this one because mm -hmm. the I want to give people an idea of what's happening. The shortfall is predicted to begin in 2027 from uh, that's yes. based on the report right yeah so this report um you know lays out uh they they what they look at is uh what if if things just kind of continue as they are how much supply of gas do we have and um, they look at that going forward and they, and they they see you know the potential for that that supply to remain fairly similar to what it is today for the next until through 2026 but in 20, 2027 without something you know quite significant changing uh that supply starts falling off um and falls you know substantially below what um what is being produced today which is also what's being consumed and so the other half of this equation is is that is that consumption how much are we actually using um and uh um, one thing that I think is, uh, I don't know, kind of a weakness of this report is all they do on the on the demand side is they just assume it's totally constant going into the future. That hasn't been true in the past, and it's something we actually have some control over in the future. Is is kind of what that that demand is. But uh, but what this report really does is it kind of emphasizes that you know it's only a few years into the future where we need to be. Um, doing something very active to respond to this situation, uh, and and so that means either you know finding some way to to uh, increase supply. So that could be some you know some new uh, source within Cook Inlet. It could be natural natural gas import, or we need to reduce our demand. And so that could be replacing natural gas with other other uh, you know renewable energy uh, it could be um, it could also be just improving efficiency in how we use the natural gas we have so um, uh, 
it kind of gives us a bit of, a bit more precision than than we had before on kind of what the clock is you know how loud is that ticking um, for us to respond to this situation and one thing I want to make clear in this report and and all through um, there is it's not just an assumption we're making that gas will have will have to start importing oil and gas in order to meet our needs. This is all through the industry. This is this is well known, and it's it, and they admitted. I want to say before I go any further that I did contact and invite NSTAR Gas and Hillcorp Oil, but they did not respond to requests to participate in this discussion. So, but here we are. So I would like to go to Aaron McKittrick. Uh, I read something that you wrote in an article that I feel helps people understand the context, and I'd like to use it as a prompt to uh, ask you to talk a little bit, which is that uh, you said in an article, which we'll link on the, in the recording to this show, that North Slope Oil determines the state's budget. Cook Inlet Oil and Gas determines your bills at home. And so if we, when we start importing energy or fossil fuels, bills will go up. So I, I don't know that, I just feel like that's a good way for people to orient themselves within the discussion. When we're talking about cooking lead oil and gas, we are talking about your bills at home. Yeah, cook inlet is unique because it is this very isolated market. So it, things, you know, gas doesn't come in and it doesn't go out. It's all used locally. And so if you look at your bills at home, if you if you have natural gas heating in your house, about 85% of that bill is the direct cost of gas. And on if you, you know, in electricity, it's about 30%. And so those things um, they actually even show up as a separate line on the bill as a gas cost adjustment or cost of power adjustment. And so if that price increases um, as our gas supply dwindles and we potentially bring in imported gas, then that's just going to directly pass through onto your bill in that line item and be substantially bigger. Thanks so much for that. That's Aaron McKittrick. Scott Waterman, is there anything you'd like to add to this part of the discussion? And Hig, uh, I'm coming for you next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, we've covered, you know, the the big picture stuff. Um, you know, you did mention that uh, Hillcorp <clears throat> is uh, one of the major producers, and you know they have uh, let the utilities know that um, they may not be able to meet contracts uh, or extend or renew future contracts with the electricity uh, utilities. Right, because they can't make, at, under current conditions, they, their business model doesn't work. Well, they may, not, they may not have the supply. Um, but the other thing that uh, uh, their vice president of operations was at the governor's sustainable energy conference in May last year, and he said, um, for anybody that is using gas in Cook Inlet, um, or using Cook Inlet gas, find other sources um, because we may not be able to meet your needs. And that came directly from the Vice President of Operations for Hillcorp. Right, thanks for making that point. It's not just us sitting around here talking, talking about it. Uh, and Brettwood Higman, is there anything you want to uh, add to that before we move on to the next point? Yeah, you know, I think that that, you know, that, that uh, perspective from Hillcorp, like one of the things I try to do 
you know, with my limited view on the world as I try to look and see whether my understanding is confirmed by the way people who are more on the inside are behaving. And in this case, I think it's really clear that there's broad agreement on the situation as far as Cook Inlet gas. Like this, all of the people who are on the inside here, I think they're all on the same page that, you know, we're, we really don't have enough to go forward as we are right now for much longer. Um, the thing where there's, you know, really an interesting discussion is how do we, how do we, you know, resolve that equation? Like, how do we, uh, how do we make our demand um, equal to, to that supply? And that's where there's really a lot of, of kind of different perspectives out there. I just well, wanted to add, if you don't mind, go one ahead. thing. Because Hillcorp actually may not have responded to your request, but um, was in front of the legislature yesterday. And one of the things they said was that basically all their gas is spoken for. So they have the supply to meet their contracts, and that is all the supply they have. Um, another thing Hillcorp said was that they had put, you know, in the last decade or so, about, you know, 750 million into capital projects in Cook Inlet. And that sounds like a lot of money, but it's interesting to take that in context that it's, you know, only around half of what the state put in. So in a way, we are, we already have been paying quite a lot for our oil and gas, for our Cook Inlet gas in the form of those subsidies that you may not directly associate, but um, so the price is somewhat artificially cheap now. Or, you know, it's not cheap. It's just that, you know, the, 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 the prices we're paying are coming from the same pot of money that we use to buy things, you know, pay for things like schools. Um, but it's just not so visible to, to all of us on the, on the paying end. And just as perspective, uh, we pay some of the highest natural gas costs in the United States. Well, thanks for all that. I want to make sure um, we will get to, because I want to have a big part of this discussion be about how we reduce use and how renewables can fill the gap or fill the need. Uh, but, but first, I'd like to hear about the economic impact for the peninsula, what this is happening, increasing prices um, and the diminishing resource. So... I think this came from Aaron McKittrick about property tax. So Hillcorp is 10% of the taxable value in the borough. Is that, did that come from you, Aaron? Uh, well, yes, via the borough's own documents. Right, it's... I've got the documents here and we'll make sure that we share them when we post this. But can you, so it, it's a huge, I know that uh, it was withdrawn, but Hillcorp did, uh, with uh, the help of Senator Giesel, uh, try to file a bill that would reduce their tax burden so that they didn't have to pay taxes on their equipment. And if Hillcorp is 10% of the taxable value in the borough, that's a huge loss economically for the borough. Yeah, I think it was actually uh, Hex, Hex Fury that, that was behind that, but they're also a substantial portion and um, the the head of Hex was talking about the same thing at the legislature yesterday. And yes, if something changed, I don't think those property taxes are directly related to production, but if anything changed how those are valued, and certainly there's at least one producer who would like to see it change, that would have a big economic impact on the borough. 
Okay, thanks so much for that. Now, I would like to start in on what are the ways to keep rate increases down and the reduction renewables drilling uh, formula that we might be able to work toward. But before I get started, I'm going to start with HIG. Uh, before I get started, I want to let people know that if you have any comments or questions for the panel, that you can call 907-235-7721, and you can speak to the panelists. If you want to just email a question for the panel, just email it to Kathleen at kbbi.org. So, Hig, can I start with the what is that? How do we build that formula of reduction and renewables to to deal with this issue? Well, so um, one of the ways that I've found useful to think about this is, you know, we have a we have a history of you know having this natural gas resource, and well, you know, as as Scott points out, it's not necessarily cheap. It's also it is affordable enough that we can you know, run our energy economy on it. I mean, it's most of most of how we run, uh, you know, how we uh, produce power and 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 heat uh, homes and businesses, etc. And, um, uh, and what we're looking at going forward is that the remaining gas that kind of fits the equation as we're familiar with it is dwindling, you know, quickly. And so if we can, um, the, the most simple, simple thing that we could do is just to cut down how much of that gas we use. Um, now that the that can mean a lot of different things. I think one of the most uh, most direct things we could do is we can talk about renewable energy generation on our power grid, um, and that uh, you know, and we can we could eventually be talking about how do we get one hundred percent off of gas. But in the immediate term, we don't need to worry about that. We if we can take and generate 50% of our power using renewable sources, that cuts down on the amount of gas we're consuming. And one of the huge challenges with renewables is that they are variable, um, or some, you know, solar and wind, which are the cheapest uh, ways to produce renewable, or really the cheapest way to produce electricity in general at this point. Um, they're, you know, they're quite variable. But at this point, like for instance on HEA's grid we have um so we have a fair amount of hydro we do have the natural gas plants which even if we're using them less they're still there and still able to kind of fill uh fill the hole if we were if if uh wind and solar were not producing much electricity we also have a large battery which could uh can take care of really short-term variability in in supply so that means the way some people would talk about it is we have a lot of balancing capacity so we if we have a variable source of electricity like wind or solar, we have a lot of ability to deal with that variability, but there's actually not that much variability on the grid right now. So this is essentially uh, a, a lost opportunity at this moment. Um, if, if the sooner we can, get, um, we can get wind and solar operating at a large scale, and when I say a large scale, you know, talking, you know, getting up into the tens of percent of our of our total electricity demand, which is vastly more than the home solar systems that are currently on it can produce. Um, 
that is basically it's going to immediately save us money and it's going to uh it's going to reduce the amount of gas we're consuming and then thus help us kind of spread out uh the remaining um uh sort of more affordable gas um in the inlet um now that's taking one piece of this whole puzzle and i don't want to imply that's the the only piece we really have to talk about how we heat heat structures too and um, think about you know efficiency as part of that. There are a lot of other pieces to this, but I think I think that uh, you know that that implementing grid scale renewables is is one of the biggest unrealized opportunities we have right in front of us. So before we continue, I think there's a caller on the line. Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. If you're referring to me, go ahead. Well, I, I didn't know how you wanted to be identified. Uh, my name is Lena. Hi, Lena. Go ahead. And I, I might not be seeing the whole big picture here, but a few years ago, I remember NSTAR was shoving that natural gas line down people's throats and up their colons. And I'm just wondering what's going to become of all of that now if they don't have enough natural gas supply. Thanks. And I'll take the answer off the air, if that's okay. Thank, great question. Thank you, Linda. So is there anyone who would like to start on that first? Well, I'll, tackle, ahead, I'll tackle it, sure. Um, so like. there's kind of two different aspects of it. Uh, one was that uh, there was a lot of... Um, there were a number of people in the South Peninsula that wanted to get natural gas and some new wells in the Anchor Point and the Nilchik area had made gas available which was going to be needed to transport need to be transported north and it was relatively easy for them to run a line down into Homer. So that is their distribution system and from a business model that probably makes sense for NSTAR to do that. Um, I'll completely dodge the controversy about um, the limited improvement districts and the requirement that people hook up to it um, or pay for it as it goes into their neighborhoods, but um, the other side is that um, NSTAR is probably not going to be out of gas. Um, they're, in fact, one of the um, contracts that is going to be uh, most likely to be extended um, on into the future because there is no replacement for them. Um, if you're on natural gas, you either have to get off natural gas or um, just reduce your use. Um, but I think that NSTAR's contract goes out something like the 20. 33 or 34, I'm not exactly sure on that, but it's it's one of the longer uh, contracts that's currently in place, and it's likely that they're um, going to be high on the list for uh, any gas that remains. Thanks. That's Scott Waterman. I do if I do have a couple of other questions stacking up at Kathleen at kbbi.org, but Hig and Aaron, I want to make sure if there's anything you want to add to that to go ahead. Um, Scott's right that NSTAR's contract does end in 2033 in the spring. Um, yeah, and yeah, NSTAR, if you actually look at gas use over time, 
uh, electricity utilities on the rail belt have actually decreased their use of gas over the last decade, and NSTAR has increased theirs um, as they've extended their lines to more people. And also, NSTAR has been um, kind of at the, I, I don't know, a leader in trying to figure out how to import natural gas. Uh, we don't know a lot of details of what their plans are, but they, they've, uh, some of what they've, they've submitted as far as uh, documents suggest they're spending quite a bit of money trying to figure out how to import LNG, um, which makes sense, them being the largest consumer and them, you know, not really having the opportunity for, a, for an alternative. Thanks. To so, clarify, think go ahead. that they don't actually specifically say that they're studying imports. They say that they're studying long-term gas supply. And many people assume that they mean imports because that's kind of the word on the street, as it were. <laughs> okay. So I, I had also have a question to Kathleen at kbbi.org. What happened to the state project to bring gas down to Nikiski from the North Slope? Can anyone address that? I'll try that one. Go ahead, Scott Waterman. Well. Uh, so the Alaska Gas Line Development Corporation is working on that. They have been since about 2011 or 12. Um, they are a separate corporation that is actually charged with developing, permitting, and ultimately perhaps constructing a gas line from the North Slope. They did make a presentation to the Kenai Economic Development District uh, Industrial Forum uh, in January that they are fully permitted uh, to run the line at this point, and they're still looking at uh, the engineering at this, they're, they're starting into the engineering at this point. So, they said it's it's possible that they could have something here by 2033 or 34, um, but given that we've been hearing about this gas line for the better part of 40 years, uh, there's a reasonable level of suspicion that that could actually be that target could actually be met. So, um, but if that's the earliest, we still have a six or seven year shortfall, uh, and we're going to have to do something else in between. Okay, uh, Hig or Aaron, do you want to add anything to that? Sure. I guess the thing that I'd like to add is that the you know they've changed the costs over time, but the current estimate for that gas line is thirty nine billion dollars, and so more so than any of the permitting and engineering, they need to find um, basically they're looking at Asian importers that want to actually foot that bill. The state doesn't have the money for it. They don't have the money for it. The producers aren't interested. And so it's very much hinges on something that is completely out of our control. And depending on whether you're talking to the folks at the gas line corporation or other people, you know, it's, it's very unclear how likely that is to actually happen, that somebody will step up and want to fund it. So, Aaron, yeah, oh, like, go ahead, Hig, go ahead. It seems like with the situation with Ukraine, where we have this sudden crunch on natural gas supply, that that's like the ideal time to secure that kind of contract. And so, at least from my my point of view, the fact that they 
as far as we know, they really they haven't. That's not a good sign. And there, I think part of that relates to a lot of other big natural gas uh, projects coming online in the Pacific. And those are easier. They don't involve this super long, 800 mile long pipeline from the North Slope that we would have to have here built across permafrost and all this sort of things. Very expensive to do. Um, these other gas projects are are uh, they can provide gas more cheaply than what what could be produced from the North Slope, and so that is uh, making it hard for for the Alaska, um, you know, to find find that buyer that wants to pay the price that they'd have to pay. And then the real question too is what is the price that we would end up paying for North Slope natural gas, and we don't really know that. Okay, I do have another uh, email question to Kathleen at kbbi.org. Although, given what Aaron just said, I wonder if, uh, well, you straighten me out. The question is from Brad. Please have the panel address why we have been expo exporting natural gas to Asia if it is in such short supply. So um, that we did export up until, let's see, it was around 2010. I think we had a little bit of export that we did after that, but we have, we're not exporting gas right now. Um, 2015. Uh, and um, the, uh, it actually, you know, that this, this would have been exactly the question to be asking in 2010 when uh, we ran into the kind of previous, the, our previous round of this crisis was, was at that time. We, we, we were running out of gas really rapidly and we didn't stop exporting it until the, kind of the last possible second. Um, and that was when the state stepped in with very generous subsidies. Um, we made this huge investment in, you know, public investment in natural gas in Cook Inlet. And, and that investment was to some degree successful. We, we found enough gas to kind of keep us going another decade there. Um, it's, you know, I, I think it was, we should recognize that that was a very expensive investment that didn't last us real long. But, uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, went a little beyond the answer there. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Uh, I want to, I have some other things to ask of the, well, just given what the conversation is, what's where it's going right now. So given the state of the Alaska, state of Alaska budget, uh, those subsidies aren't going to, are not likely to happen, are they? Like, again? I don't think that they're going to be very likely. There's, there's, uh, not only is the budget somewhat more constrained than it was in 2010 when oil prices were very high, uh, up over, well over $100 a barrel, um, but there is less unexplored area um, in Cook Inlet uh, that is nearby any existing in infrastructure. Uh, the recent leases in the last few years have been uh, more in areas that have not been developed yet, and that by its nature is going to increase the cost of that gas if there is any to be brought to market. Okay, I have one more uh, question stacked up. Also, thank you so much, listeners, for your questions and your level of engagement. If you want to call in, the number is 907-235-7721, or you can email your question to Kathleen at kbbi.org. And the next one is, uh, how does the governor's carbon capture plans fit into all this? Now, it certainly doesn't help anyone produce more energy, 
But uh, also there are local projects and borough, city and borough projects underway that are uh, exploring and moving on, planning for carbon capture proje projects. Uh, so, but the question is, how does this, how can this fit into the formula of dealing with um, reduced oil and gas supply? I mean, it's just, first of all, carbon capture credits. Can someone explain it to the listeners? I can take a stab at that one. Thanks. That's Erin so, McKittrick. Sure. I think that it's really confusing, partly because the governor has um, kind of basically been selling this as a potential revenue generator for the state. And for that to happen, what that means is there needs to be some entity that is capturing CO2 that wants to inject it into you know, our basins and pay money to do so. And I think that that, you know, there isn't anyone either shipping carbon dioxide in, there's no facility we have in Cook Inlet that's capturing carbon dioxide. So, and if it, the technology isn't even really there if to capture carbon dioxide from something like a power plant and it would be really like that's the part of it that's expensive pumping gas underground is something that's actually relatively easy it's done for enhanced oil recovery getting a whole bunch of co2 to do that with is hard um and so that it doesn't really relate i do think one interesting thing that came up in the legislative hearing yesterday is one of the uh, gas operators in the inlet who own the cosmopolitan field off anchor point was hopeful that just having a framework for potentially capturing carbon sometime in the future would make Alaska seem more environmentally friendly and help them get investors to develop their gas field although nobody has suggested actually capturing any carbon dioxide in the inlet any time in the near future. So just to provide a little context, uh, you know, stepping up a little higher level, <laughs> the, the basic concept here is that, um, so carbon dioxide is a major driver of climate change. So how do we reduce that? Well, One we saw, way I'm sorry that. to interrupt, but we saw this, yep. uh, the model that I'm basing my understanding on is when the auto industry would or other industries would sell their they would economize or they would reduce and they would get credit for that and then they could sell that to people who weren't reducing or economizing on energy on co2 but yeah you go ahead that's <laughs> that's kind of the idea is that we could you know we one way we might do this is you might say well if there's some industry that really just cannot uh, reduce their CO2 emissions, they might kind of offset those emissions by funding reductions somewhere else in the economy. And so the way that, so that, that the idea would be like, if you're running a steel plant in, you know, somewhere far away, you could say, well, I don't know how to not emit CO2 for my steel plant, but I will give, you know, $30 for every ton of CO2, the you know, someone in Alaska doesn't put into the atmosphere that they would have otherwise done it. if we hadn't given them that that money that would have gone into the atmosphere otherwise. Um, and uh, and so that it's that transfer of money that would be potentially the driver here. But as Aaron points out, there's although there's a lot of talk about this, 
it, it, there's no real sign that this is a real near-term uh, solution. And a lot of that is because just dealing with moving CO2 around, either capturing it from a waste stream or taking it from wherever you capture it uh, to where you can inject it into the ground, those aren't easy problems, and uh, we don't we aren't there yet at all. It's it's definitely not a, a near term kind of solution um, right here. And notably, the state's bill does not suggest actually setting up a program to do any capturing of carbon dioxide, merely to allow companies to potentially come do that. So there can't be any offset unless somebody is actually sequestering the carbon dioxide and, and they find a willing buyer to uh give money to those uh carbon capture credits it just sounds like it's all up in the air uh i do want to move on uh to to what since we're talking about this let's move into what kind of renewable energy products are underway right now and uh, because the last question I have from my email was, how does an individual work toward this, toward uh, increased investment in renewables and that sort of thing? But first, before we get to what a person can, how a person can participate as an individual, can we talk a little bit about projects that are underway? Scott Waterman, I'd like to start with you. If there are, so solar, wind, Tidal, geothermal, pick one. The Dixon diversion. There's there's all kinds of things go that are going sure, on. Sure. So can you give people some idea of what's happening now in terms of renewables? The things that could be invested in and increased. Well, as Hig mentioned earlier, solar and wind are basically the cheapest way to produce electricity in North America today. Um, so. Uh, but both of those are what we call variable resources. You know, they only produce when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. And so in order for those to be really effective, they have to have some kind of storage, um, i.e. batteries, to allow uh, that variability to smooth out because power grids really like a very smooth, even uh, source. So uh, solar wind with storage are, are still some of the lowest cost um, investments today. We have tidal, which Cook Inlet has some of the highest tides in the world. I think we're somewhere on fourth or fifth on the world stage for tidal change um, each day. And that can be a very reliable sort of thing, but the technology isn't there yet. However, that said, the Ocean Renewable Power Corporation does have a turbine in the water at Point McKenzie as we speak. And right now they're just seeing how the belugas uh, act, act towards it. And they're doing some of their environmental impact studies on that right now. I do want to ask, just to make it clear for the listeners, who's collecting that energy at Point McKenzie? There Where is no energy go? being collected at this point. Just the turbine. The turbine is in the water and they're doing their environmental studies just to see how the beluga whales are reacting to it, if there is any reaction. And that's part of their environmental assessment to make sure that they don't interfere with any of the whale migration or any of the other issues that are may may come up around the the beluga whales because those are a endangered uh, 
subspecies of belugas. So that is in the, in the works, and I spent a couple of hours with some of the people from Ocean Renewable Power Corporation last spring, and they have hopes that they will be able to be in the water with uh, several turbines in the five megawatt uh, range each um, by 20, somewhere between 2027 and 2030. Um, whether that comes to fruition and at what cost, we, we really don't know yet. And five megawatts, what's the scale in terms of filling the need? So for the Kenai Peninsula, we use on average about 60 megawatts um, you know, per hour. So it's not nothing? Um, it's not nothing. And the thing about these machines is that they can be stacked. So they can, uh, you can have several five megawatt machines in the water and you know four of them would be 20 megawatts you know six of them would be 30 and so on um, so that provides not quite what we call uh, baseline power but um, or base load power but uh, it, it's fairly good and if they're staggered in different places uh, the times that they go slack in the slack tides at high and low tide are different uh, so that we can have uh, uh, tidal generation could be a very viable source in the future. Geothermal is also underway. There's two companies that have leases uh, for geothermal plants in the inlet. Um, that's probably on the longer term horizon. Um, but if any, of they, they are doing explorations, they, they are looking for geothermal resources, particularly around Mount Spur, because that would be the most um, or the easiest access to get power to the grid. And it's not too far from the Beluga substation. So I, I do want to get back to wind and solar. There's a, a project in Willow and in Houston, both in Alaska. But I also want to ask if anybody has any intelligence on Grant Lake Hydro. They've got their permits and road construction might begin. So can, is anyone ready to speak to that? Um, I mean, I think that's basically what's, what you can say about that. Uh, okay. It's a relatively small project, but hydro, as was pointed out earlier, is one of the resources that can be used to help balance others. Um, the same company that uh, is building the solar farm in Houston and built the one in Willow is interested in doing one on the Kenai Peninsula their first land lease fell through. And as far as I know, they are still interested in doing that and are looking for available land. And one way, one way I, I guess I organize this in my head is just to try to imagine a, a plausible way forward. I mean, there's a lot of any given moment, there's a lot of complicated options on the table, but we kind of step back and say, well, what, what might happen here? And that would make sense and be a, a good way forward. Um, there's some things that might happen to be bad, but, uh, um, and uh, I think the way I think of this is right now. So, you know, Scott mentioned that, that storage is really important for balancing renewables, but we also, uh, you know, variable generation can also balance, uh, you know, very, you know, so and what do you mean like, by what do you mean by variable generation? 
so a, a gas plant can even be balancing against a against a wind, for instance, or one of the best ones to do this with is hydro. And so Grant Lake that's coming online is a relatively small hydro project, but we do have Bradley, which is quite large. Uh, and you mentioned Dixon diversion earlier. That's a, a potential way to add to uh, Bradley. And so between all of these existing renewable and existing gas uh, generation, we can actually balance quite a bit of, of wind and solar. So I think that the, the shortest term thing is let's expand our wind and solar, just take advantage of that opportunity we have to, to do that. And, and there are in, you know, the, uh, the company that Aaron mentioned, Renewable IPP, and you know, if they are able to get uh, solar in, that would be great. Um, HEA is directly exploring wind opportunities. Uh, um, takes a little bit more time because you have to do a, a fairly careful assessment of wind conditions, which means kind of environmental monitoring for a time. Um, and the infrastructure to build wind is a little bit more complicated than solar. But both of those could potentially come online pretty quickly. And that's what I really hope we'll see is that we'll see that wind and solar being operational soon. And in the meantime, we need to be, you know, exploring that geothermal, the tidal, um, we could also talk about things like pumped hydro storage, which is a, a way of, of uh, basically it's like using a, a, a hydropower facility very much as a battery rather than as an energy source. And um, you know there are ways that we could we could be putting these things together to get beyond. Let's say it's it's quote unquote easy to get to 50, 60, 70 percent renewables. At that point, it starts getting a lot harder. But if we can bring in things like geothermal, like uh, tidal and pumped hydro, um, these could help get us further along that course, eventually towards 100% renewable. Thanks. That's, so, oh, go ahead, Erin McKittrick. Go ahead. I I just wanted to bring it back to one aspect of the listeners, a question that I think this didn't address, which is what somebody can do as an individual. And as an individual, you actually have a lot of things you can do in kind of two realms. One is your own personal energy use, and one is your political power. So your personal energy use, using less energy in general, either using less, you know, natural gas heat, using less electricity, you know, efficiency and conservation definitely helps. Um, you can also put solar panels on your house, generate some of your own electricity. If you heat with natural gas, you could consider switching to a different fuel source, like a air ground source heat pump. And you also have power over the decision makers, right? I've mentioned several times hearings going on in the legislature. The legislature, you know, was responsible for the Cook Inlet tax credits. They are responsible for funding or not funding the renewable energy fund that provides grants to develop renewable projects. And also you are you can vote for your electric utility board members that make the actual decisions to build or not build something or sign a contract. So I just wanted to. Thanks. Or That's, potentially could oh, run. Yes, <laughs> you, true. You could, you could run for office. You too. could, <laughs> yes. I have two more questions stacked up at Kathleen at kbbi.org, and I want to make sure we get to them because we're in the last 10 minutes of the show. Uh, the first one come, says, how does Donlin mine gas needs affect Cook Inlet supplies. Does anybody have an answer for that? 
Well, I mean, I think that they probably, you know, need, I think they would probably have a hard time securing a contract to meet their needs. And it makes me wonder about the economic viability of that project. Oh, also, I remember in the discussion in planning this, that there was a, uh, that Fairbanks was going to try and get energy from NSTAR, but that NSTAR was unable to meet their needs. Do I have that right? So Fairbanks is not, does not have any connection to natural gas in the form of a pipeline. They did manage to secure some, a, a very small contract with NSTAR, the electric utility did, to burn that gas in Anchorage power plants because otherwise they're burning coal and oil and buying gas power is the cheaper alternative for them. There's also a heating gas utility in Fairbanks that is going to be trucking LNG from the North Slope, and that's a very small amount, but quite expensive. And I, the, go ahead, the, uh, the example that you were talking about is that they initially, what they hoped to do was to find a supplier, one of the gas producers to provide gas to, the, to them so that they could uh, you know, send it to one of the other utilities' gas plants. Um, that was unsuccessful, and so that what they did instead was actually to get us, you know, the small contract with NSTAR. But I, I thought it was significant in that they were they were um, you know going and and talking directly to these gas producers, saying, "Hey, can we enter into a new contract?" Which, in the last couple of years, we haven't seen that process play out. And the result was nobody was willing to enter into a new contract. I don't know what prices they were offering, but really GVA, the, the Fairbanks utility, was probably in a position to offer what would look like pretty good prices uh, um, uh, to, you know, like higher prices than what uh, a lot of the contracts were. So the fact they couldn't find anyone willing to sign such a contract suggests that when we come up on new contracts for the existing customers, including HEA, that those will probably be at a higher price. And HEA is actually the first of all these entities that is going to run out of their current contracts. They're running out next year. So this is, this is of concern. Thanks so much. I have a question. What are the resources in terms of technical advice that are available to individuals wanting to pursue heat pumps? Where do you look for that information? Anybody? Well, there's uh, there, there's a little limited right now, um, and I actually think that uh, heat pumps are a huge topic, uh, and there's a lot of interest out there. Um, uh, some of us have been wanting to, uh, you know, we've ha been actively having having this this discussion amongst some of us is like, can we try to put together such a such a resource? There are uh, there is a a online calculator that uh, that can allow you to estimate. Kind of how the how the economics would work out. Um, uh, the thing that I think a lot of people are grappling with is it's just a new and unfamiliar technology for a lot of people, and there are various options. It takes you know, uh, for instance, some heat pumps require uh, an HVAC te technician that can deal with refrigerants to install, and that's something that people aren't real familiar with from a home home uh, perspective. Um, and uh, and so I think there's there's some there's some tricky bits to it. And uh, right now, I think we're short on capacity both to do that installation and also just to help uh, kind of 
get the public more up to speed on what's involved in that. Thanks. Um, yeah, could I be want... a huge discussion. Heat pumps could be a, a whole hour here. We could take an hour <laughs> on that. Good. I'll put it on the calendar. I have one more. Uh, and oh, here's a fun one. Wayne wants to. Wayne says nuclear power appears to be the best answer for this. Uh, so, is there any anybody? Scott Waterman, go. Sure, I see you. Sure. Um, so, when nuclear power first became available in the 1950s. Uh, many, many in the industry said it's going to be too cheap to meter, but the consensus is today that it's too expensive to matter. Uh, so it, there are what are being called next generation uh, small nuclear power plants on the drawing boards that show some promise over kind of the big centralized plants that we have in places like uh, Seabrook, New Hampshire, and Diablo Canyon, California. Um, they're smaller plants in the, in the range of maybe 10 to 50 megawatts, uh, which would be much more appropriately sized for an area like the Kenai Peninsula. Um, but they're still probably 10 to 15 years out in development much like the uh, tidal and geothermal resources. We don't know what kind of prices they'll come in at, and, um, and they're not anywhere close to um, having any, the only way that they can bring the price down is to come up with kind of a standardized plant, and uh, that is going to have to be worked out in the marketplace because there's several different companies that are attempting to, develop these, these small plants, and standardization and, and sort of mass production uh, is the only way that's going to bring the price down on those. And we still have the issue of what do you do with the waste. So um, it is probably more likely that these newer plants will generate less waste and uh, have um, the opportunity to have their cores uh, completely removed and transported to a waste facility, but the waste is still going to be there. Okay, thanks. That's Scott Waterman. Uh, and we have pretty much come to the end of the hour, but I want to make sure to give uh, Hig, is there anything you'd like to add to this hour's conversation? Places you might direct people for more information or, or anything that you feel like has gone unsaid? And then Aaron, I'll come to you next. Sure. Yeah, I, I just want to thank you for for putting this conversation together. And I think we're one of the challenges, um, you know, that we're we face kind of collectively right now is that um, our energy infrastructure, one way or another, is going to change dramatically. And and while it's historically been something, you know, that's kind of the you know, like the idea of a utility board for a long time was very boring. Right now, it's actually uh, something I think we all need to be uh, very aware of and engaged in. So I really encourage all your listeners to keep uh, looking to different sources to learn about these topics. Um, and I appreciate you putting this this conversation together. Thanks. That's Brett Wood Higman. How about Aaron McKittrick? Anything you'd like to, to add? I guess just bringing it back to the fact that, you know, we have been here before and we just kicked the can down the road. So everybody saw this coming. The tax credits, to some extent, kicked the can down the road. The state's 2018 report said the same thing. And, and so it really it does behoove us to look at that demand piece that we have the most control over and work on reducing it now. And 
not thinking, you know, does that me get you all the way off gas immediately? Of course not, but making that demand not flat makes a huge difference in how long it lasts, even if we can't solve the whole problem right away. Okay, thanks so much. That's Aaron McKittrick, Brett Wood-Higman, and Scott Waterman. I'm Kathleen Gustafson, and this has been The Coffee Table. You'll be able to hear a rebroadcast of this program at kbbi.org, and let's say by this afternoon sometime, but it'll be on before tomorrow. And thanks for thanks to all the listeners who tuned in and sent comments and questions. We really appreciate your engagement.